Today on Against the Grain, the effects of climate change are here and serious. While this may seem like uncharted waters in the modern era, our ancestors in the 1600s faced a global climate crisis in a century wracked by wars, famines, and social unrest. I'm Sasha Lilly. Historian Jeffrey Parker joins me to look at the lessons of the 17th century. That's coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Climate chaos, droughts, food riots, state failure, and social upheaval. Is this a picture of the future if global warming is not significantly slowed? Actually, it's a scenario that's happened already, and the results were unsettling, to say the least. In the 17th century, there was a climate crisis of global proportions. Up to a third of the world's population died in the resulting famines and wars that followed. We can thank historian Jeffrey Parker for shedding light on this earlier crisis. In his award-winning book, Global Crisis, War, Climate Change, and Catastrophe in the 17th Century, he brings together a vast amount of data to make the case for the centrality of the climate in understanding that most violent century. Parker teaches at Ohio State University and is the author of many books. Uh, Jeffrey Parker, I wonder if you can begin by describing for us the extent of the climate crisis of the 1600s, of global cooling, as it were. I think the first thing to notice is that it is not a unique event. We know that uh, more recently there was a single year, 1816, uh, the year which is known in American sources as the Yankee Chill. Uh, It's the one year in the records in which, for example, the tree records, which are one of our great sources for um, year-on-year climate change, that was the one year that there is no growth at all. There is no tree ring for 1816. Looking back a bit further in the 14th century, uh, tree ring and other evidence shows that there's obviously a major cooling phase in the 1340s. Uh, It's interesting to study people, uh, uh, my colleague Bruce Campbell at the Queen's University of Belfast is studying it, but there's just more information for the mid-17th century, uh, both because it lasts longer and because it's really the first major climatic aberration which occurs when a very large number of people around the world are able to write down what they experience. So we have uh, an enormous database. We have a natural archive made up of things like tree rings, and we also have a human archive made up of things like diaries. And they indicate a number of aberrations. The first and most obvious is the winters last longer and the summers are cooler. The second is that when you get a particular weather pattern, it seems to stick. Uh, what I think climatologists call a blocked climate. That's to say, if you get a period without rain, that period is going to last a very long time. And so these two things really stand out in the record. They stand out in the natural record. They stand out in the human record. It, It certainly is global cooling. That's the most salient feature. But it's also a combination of really extreme events. And some of those events have very serious consequences. Drought, obviously, will kill the crops. People will starve. But very long periods of drought also tend to dry out towns. Towns have large amounts of wooden buildings, whether it's in China and Japan or in Europe. And we notice an extraordinary prevalence of fires. There's a lot of urban fires. The Great Fire of London is well known, but there's great fires in Istanbul. There's great fires in Tokyo, as it was known then, Edo. There's great fires in Beijing. And that's clearly related to the prevalence of drought, because if you have 20 weeks without any rain, you have tinder dry conditions, not unlike what I think you have in California right now. Indeed. So what uh, is surmised to be the causes of the extreme weather of the 17th century? Contemporaries didn't have a clue. That's where, unfortunately, the human record lets us down. Uh, They blame it all on, oh, uh, most of them blame God. 
this this is or not blame they attribute it to god they say this is god's work uh they're a very uh, uh religious society they're also what we might call a peccatogenic society they see everything in terms of sin so they look for what may have alienated god and they in most countries around the northern hemisphere particularly in europe and america they hit upon sodomy stage plays and satan so they uh, try and identify those who either practice or tolerate homosexual behavior. They ban stage plays, and they burn witches. Uh, none of them, in fact, have any effect on the climate. However many witches you burn, you are still going to have climate change. You're still going to have cooler climates. They also blame comets. And that's a curious thing because it just happens, for reasons we don't understand, that there are more comets in the mid-17th century than at any other time recorded before or since. So they see the frequent comets and they immediately attribute the misfortunes of their time to that. Now we think we have three other culprits. We historians, we climatologists think we have three other culprits. One is an extraordinary phenomenon which is without parallel, and that is the disappearance of sunspots. As you know, sunspots are those uh, uh, dark areas on the sun that are, in fact, extreme heat. They are increasing the heat output of the sun. And between around 1640 and 1710, they virtually disappear. There are about 100 sunspots in that 70-year period, compared with perhaps 100 sunspots each year in the 20th century. So this is a major aberration. It's called the Monde Minimum, and it clearly has some contribution to global cooling because the sun is simply not as warm as it was. Why that should be is something that no one understands, but of course it's a terrifying prospect. We, we would all like our sun to be constant, and if it can't be constant, we'd like it to be regular. And when we see a major irregularity like that, it's alarming. I, I should just say that this is not absence of evidence. That's to say it's not that nobody can see sunspots and they're not looking. On the contrary, uh, Galileo has just invented his super telescopes, and there are uh, a number of astronomers looking at the sun every single day and recording whether or not they see sunspots. There are, in fact, 8,000 daily observations, and that's where we get the figure of perhaps 100 sunspots in the 70-year period. So... First, the absence of sunspots. The second is a, a strange plethora of volcanic eruptions, especially at lower latitudes uh, around the equator. Uh, there are a quite extraordinary number of them, and they, of course, throw uh, uh, dust into the sky, uh, which will obscure and uh, reflect the sun's rays back, so you get global cooling in precisely those areas where the majority of humankind lives around the equator uh, uh, in the northern hemisphere. So more volcanoes, fewer sunspots, more volcanoes. The third aberration is uh, in the phenomenon known as El Nino, El Nino Southern Oscillation, which normally uh, 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 we get every five years at the moment, but in the mid-17th century it's twice as frequent. And this is important because El Nino is one of the most important climatic phenomena. It drives the climate in the northern hemisphere. It brings, uh, when it occurs, it brings drought to Asia, and it brings enormous floods to America and Americas and the Caribbean. It also seems to bring cooler weather in northern, uh, northeast United States and in northern Europe. So more Ninos mean worse weather, and those three together, fewer sunspots, more volcanic eruptions, more frequent El Ninos, those seem to be the culprits for the climate change that we observe in the 17th century. And in fact, up to a third of the world's population died during this period, which is a number which is hard to fathom. And I want to talk to you about why and how that is the case. You write that the 17th century saw a proliferation of wars, civil wars and rebellions, and more cases of state breakdown around the globe than any previous or subsequent age. Are you suggesting that this sort of social dislocation and upheaval was primarily due to the climate? Are there other factors at play? What happened here? What I argue in the book is for 
what I call a fatal synergy, a synergy between human and natural causes. Uh, the global cooling, which, I put, which the sources are unanimous in uh, uh, reporting, clearly reduces the amount of food available. And that uh, means that most societies, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, particularly those that are already heavily populated, uh, such as England uh, uh, and China, uh, two societies where the sources in the 1610s and 1620s, before the climate begins to cool, the sources all say, you know, we have too many people. One of the reasons why so many English families migrate to New England is because they can't make it at home. Uh, it's partly resistance to the religious policies of Charles I, but it's also that there are just too many people in England to feed, and it looks like a better deal to go across to uh, New England, to Massachusetts, uh, and to Virginia. So you do have uh, 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 that phenomenon. You have uh, 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 a migration from these areas. And what it means to those, for those who remain is very different. Uh, you may wonder where I come up with that figure, one-third of the world dies. It's, it's a particularly striking statement by a, a French abbess. Her name is Angelique Arnaud, and she lives in a convent. She runs a convent near to Paris. And in the 1650s, in 1652 to be precise, uh, she looks around at the desolation that surrounds her convent, and she says, you know, there's nobody here. Uh, the men are all dead. They've gone to the wars. Uh, uh, a third of the world has died. That's her exact phrase. And, uh, you know, interesting qualitative source. Uh, how would she know? Uh, uh, it's a guess, but the funny thing is, uh, historians have looked at the parish registers of the area around where she wrote. Every parish priest keeps a register of baptisms and burials and marriages, and many of these have survived. And a historian who put together the picture from these records year on year shows that 1652 is by far the worst year in terms of survival. The number of burials goes up, the number of baptisms and marriages go down, a sort of scissors effect. And if you reconstruct the size of the populations around uh, Mère Angelique Arnaud's convent, you indeed see that the population has gone down by about a third. It's an uncanny correlation between two different forms of sources. So you do have some evidence, and there's plenty of others I could give you that some of them deployed in my book, uh, to show that there is this dramatic fall. And no, it is not all to do with climate, as I was saying a few moments ago. I think it's a sort of synergy. The climate change creates a crisis, but governments, human action or inaction, can turn crisis into catastrophe. And the leading way in which that happens is through war. What Angelique Arnaud sees around her is war. There's a civil war. It's called the Fronde, uh, uh, which sees various armies marching across, uh, trying to get control of Paris, and, of course, causing terrible suffering, terrible uh, uh, deprivation, killing people, destroying crops, you know, what the uh, cooler climate has left behind, the soldiers will destroy. So it is a combination of war and climate which produces problems that no state can solve. And when you have a government that is incapable of solving the problems that face you, you begin to get rebellions. You begin to get uh, cases of state breakdown. Uh, uh, Paris uh, uh, is a case in point. In 1648, uh, the government of Louis XIV, uh, then a minor, uh, uh, but run by his mother, Anne of Austria, and her chief minister, Cardinal Mazarin, they're uh, driven out of Paris. They flee. They, they, they leave the city. They try to impose order. There's a m mass rioting against them, they panic, and they leave the city. They don't come back for five years. Uh, at the same year, 1648, there's enormous rioting in Naples, which uh, overthrows the government, uh, uh, and for a year, Naples becomes a republic. Uh, Sicily is the same. Uh, uh, the harvest fails. Uh, there is a series of riots, and one by one, the great towns of Sicily form republics. Uh, uh, going to Russia, which is the largest state in the world at this time, uh, in 1648, again, you get mass rioting in Moscow and various other cities all across uh, uh, the empire uh, against the government. Uh, it is a case of state breakdown. The program is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is Sasha Lilly, and I'm joined by Jeffrey Parker. We're speaking about his book, Global Crisis, War, Climate Change, and Catastrophe in the 17th Century. That's published by Yale University Press. So how did elites then respond? You've started to talk about it. How did elites respond to 
the effects of this climate crisis in the 17th century as uh, crops became scarce, as people became malnourished, unhappy. How did elites, by and large, respond to the crisis? I see two different sets of responses, maybe three. Uh, The first and the commonest is to do nothing. Uh, Rather like today, when faced with climate change, the commonest response is denial. Uh, There's nothing wrong. Let's carry on the way we are. So uh, they continue to fight wars. If they're already fighting wars, they carry on. It's more difficult to mobilize resources. The costs of mobilizing resources are harsher. Uh, uh, The rebellions, the rioting that results from mobilizing more resources for war are greater, but the governments continue. Very often they, uh, like most people, see this as a divine uh, uh, intervention that uh, God is hazing them. Uh, they see the uh, difficulties of fighting and winning the war as a sort of divine challenge. They are right. They have to persevere. They have to continue. So they do nothing. They continue uh, to make the situation worse. That's one set of reactions. It's the commonest one in Europe. Uh, when you get uh, uh, to India, Mughal India, you encounter a state that is so rich that it can, in fact, throw money at the problem. And it does. The Mughal emperors open uh, 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 shelters for the homeless. They open soup kitchens for the starving. And they continue to fight wars because they can afford to. Uh, So it's not business as usual. They do, in fact, divert some of their resources into uh, 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 welfare, but they continue with warfare. They're still primarily a warfare state, but they can afford to uh, uh, divert resources uh, instead of building the Taj Mahal, uh, uh, which is an enormously costly undertaking. It's built in the 1630s. Instead of building another Taj Mahal, the uh, uh, Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan uh, uh, devotes money into uh, welfare. The third example, and I'm afraid I only have one for you, the third example of a government reaction is to change policy to say this is catastrophic. This famine that we're facing now, these frosts, these snows that we don't normally have, we absolutely have to change our policy. And the uh, Tokugawa uh, dynasty, uh, and particularly the shogun whose name is Iemitsu, uh, uh, in the 1630s and 40s, not only uh, starts opening the granaries, Uh, and issuing a a series of very detailed uh, uh, laws to, for example, prohibit the use of rice for anything except food. No sake. No more sake. You can't make or drink sake. You have to use all the rice you have because there's little enough of it for food. Uh, But he also uh, rejects uh, attempts to get him involved in war. Um, uh, The Tokugawa have been very successful in eliminating their domestic rivals. Uh, But in the 1640s, the Chinese uh, Ming Dynasty, uh, which is facing invasion from the north by the Manchu, uh, come to Japan and say, please help us, please help us. These these Manchus, they're no good there. They're similar to the Mongols, who you may remember, Shogun, uh, invaded Japan in the the 13th century. So please help us. And the Shogun says, well, you know, I'm convinced, you know, I I, I really do believe these people, the the Manchu are the same as the Mongols. I would love to help you. I would love to send you troops. I would love to try and defeat these people. But my people are dying. They're dropping dead in the feet. We have no food. I absolutely cannot engage in a foreign military enterprise. In the 1650s, the Dutch come along and they say, look, the Spanish and the Portuguese are fighting each other. This is a golden opportunity for the two of us to combine and take over the Philippine Islands, which are only 400 miles south of Japan. They're really very close. And they try and tempt the shogun to join an expedition to take over the Spanish Philippines. And the shogun says the same thing. Look, you know, I I hear you. It's a golden opportunity. I do realize it probably won't come again, but my people are dying. They're dropping dead in the street. Uh, The climate is bad. Uh, I need to concentrate all my resources on domestic affairs. I'm sorry, I can't help you. It's the only government, the only occasion I could find in the 17th century of a government which acts to mitigate instead of exacerbate the problems caused by climate change. And Tokugawa Japan stands out in that during the 17th century, its population actually experiences population growth rather than contraction compared to the rest of the world. May I just comment on that because it's a really important point, but it's very contentious. Please do. Uh, I believe 
and I argued in the book that that is the case. And subsequently, um, in fact, there's a, a new issue of a, um, a journal called Historically Speaking, which came out uh, uh, just in the uh, end of March. And there's a forum on the book Global Crisis, and uh, a number of other historians, especially Kenneth Pomerantz, a very eminent historian of East Asia, argues that there is no such demographic cushion. That's to say that uh, there is no, uh, uh, there's no real evidence that uh, Japan's population is low uh, and then expands uh, uh, despite the climate change. Uh, and he looks at figures uh, uh, which are hotly contested. Some have, I argued, for example, based on the um, demographers that I had read, that Japan's population in 1600 is 12 million. And Pomerantz looks at other demographers who say, well, no, it's 15 million. And that's a big difference. But here's what I think is important. Everybody agrees, all the demographers agree, because the data is much more reliable, that by 1700, the population of Japan is 30 million. Now, the difference then is whether it almost triples, as I had thought, or whether it only doubles in the course of the 17th century. But either way, as you just said in your introduction, that is a unique achievement. No other population in the 17th century appears to have risen, and certainly none of them rise to that degree. And it's interesting because it does appear that the way Japan was able to do that was less uh, the result of a master plan to mitigate the effects of climate change than in many ways an approach that you term less is more. Is that accurate? Yes, I, I think so. Uh, uh, no, I, I have to admit, I cannot read Japanese. I cannot speak Japanese. I therefore paid to play. I, I uh, found uh, scholars, research students. Uh, I mean, I read everything I could in English. And there's a lot of um, excellent scholarship on Japan in English, but there's also the sources which are in Japanese. So I found able and, and, and willing research uh, assistants uh, who I paid to look at the sources and go through the data. Uh, uh, so there, there's always that doubt. You know, in the case of Spain, Britain, France, Italy, I can read the stuff myself. Uh, but in the case of Japan, I can't. That's one of the dangers with world history. But it does seem to me, looking at all the data, that here is a society, uh, which is uh, uh, which really does believe, uh, as you say, that less is more. It, uh, uh, however, uh, having said that, uh, the government of the Tokugawa is somewhat intrusive. Its legislation is annoyingly detailed. I mean, it issues very, very long pieces uh, of legislation with multiple clauses saying exactly what has to be done to try and address the problems created by the shortage of food and the change in the climate. Uh, uh, and and it also tells the landowners, the, uh, uh, the daimyo, uh, who are allied with the Tokugawa, uh, the shogun will send out letters to them and say, look, this is what I'm doing. I expect you to do the same. And then there's little sort of you know, few sentences of, of nice, you know, making nice. And then it says, if by any chance there's any rioting because you didn't do what I told you, you'll lose your head. <laughs> that seems to get their attention, and you find the daimyo, whose records we have uh, we've got, uh, saying, you know, his his Majesty the the Shogun has decreed that we do in this and this, and what a great idea that is, and let's show him that we can do it here. So, although it's um, uh, the government uh, the, the, in Edo um, it, it doesn't need to show its its claws, it has them, and everybody knows it. So, so the, the, the idea that it, it manages to achieve what it does by inaction uh, or by, by just taking small actions is slightly misleading. It doesn't need to, to wield the, the meat cleaver in order to get uh, what it wants. Uh, everybody knows that the shogun's power is so enormous. Uh, and there are some executions. Uh, there's a, um, a thief called Aisu in which in 1642 uh, the, 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 uh, lander, the, the peasants uh, do rise up, uh, 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 and, and some of them flee, and some of them rebel. And the shogun comes in and he restores order, he executes the, uh, the ringleaders of the peasants, and then he executes the landlord. <laughs> so he first of all restore order, uh, uh, get rid of all those, all those uppity peasants. But then, you know, I told you, show, you know, Daimyo, I told you if, if you provoked any sort of trouble, you were in for it, so off with, off with his head. And that gets the attention of the other daimyo. 
Um, you don't really need to do that more than once to make the others uh, sit up and pay attention. So it's it's uh, it's a uh, very remarkable. Uh, I, I, as far as I can, I mean, all Japanese historians will tell you Japan is different. But in this particular case, I think Japan is different. Its uh, its record is is significantly contrasts with that of the other countries which I studied for this book. And I was so pleased to find a country in which the government behaves in what we would think of as rational ways, because it um, largely avoided the charge that I was applying 21st century standards to 17th century problems, because here was a 17th century government acting in exactly the way that I would have thought logical. Sure. Well, I wonder if we could talk about governments that believe that more is more. Uh, To what degree did states faced with food riots popular revolts, to what degree did states decide to invade their neighbors and try and seize resources or more fertile land that way? There's very few examples I can think of in Europe that a government tries to solve a, a basically a, a, a resource problem by invasion. Uh, it's true that, for example, Sweden, Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden, invades Germany in 1613. But it would be very difficult to argue that he does so because, for example, the Swedish population is too large, and he wants to occupy Germany to try and uh, find food for all those starving Swedes. But you do find an excellent example of exactly that in China, uh, where in 1644 uh, there is an invasion by China's northern neighbors, who call themselves the Manchu and sometimes the Qing dynasty. Uh, And in 1644 they invade China uh, because they're starving. Uh, uh, There is a civil war in China. Uh, The conditions have become so serious, a combination of Bad weather uh, and inept government policies have created uh, terrible upheavals and unrest. And in um, uh, spring 1644, an, uh, a bandit army actually marches on Beijing and takes it. Uh, now, Beijing is not that far from the Great Wall uh, then as now, and uh, uh, a group of Ming loyalist generals decide that the only way to get rid of the bandits who've captured Beijing is to bring in the Manchu as allies. So they open the gates in the Great Wall, literally open the gates, and to their surprise, there is a very large Manchu army waiting outside. And they don't seem to think this is odd. But the reason for that is that the Manchu have already decided that their only chance of survival is to invade China and get hold of its resources. Uh, uh, The Ming loyalists make it easy for them. And uh, within uh, six weeks, uh, the Manchu have taken over Beijing and they say, oh, here we are. Uh, well, we are the new dynasty. This is, this is the mandate of heaven. Uh, here we are. That's your enough proof for you. Um, and they take over the whole of northern, northern China. Uh, uh, they then make, and this is an interesting example of how not everything in the 17th century is to do with climate. Uh, they then make a serious strategic error. They decide that there's only, there's only 250,000 of them compared with 100 million Chinese. So they, they face a problem of, of trying to make their uh, new government stick, make their new government effective. And they decide that the best way to do that is to make all Chinese males uh, uh, look like them, look like Manchus. And it's very easy to do that because Chinese elite males have long hair and long robes, whereas the Manchu have shaved foreheads, wear the rest of their hair in a pigtail, and wear tight-fitting tunics. And so the Manchu decree, uh, shortly after they take Beijing, they say, right, so every male Chinese, if they are loyal to us, will start shaving their forehead, having their hair in a pigtail, and dressing like us. They realize that it's difficult to force people to buy new clothes. They may not be able to, but everyone can shave their forehead. And it's, it's also a very effective way of um, establishing loyalty because uh, uh, hair grows. And so you have to keep shaving. You have to, it's not something you have to do just once. You have to keep on shaving. So this is very effective from their point of view. But, of course, it is deeply humiliating from the point of view of the Chinese male elite. And what you find in South China is that the, uh, uh, the elite begins to uh, uh, rebel against the head-shaving edict. Uh, as, as the saying of the Manchus go, you know, you have a choice here. You can either keep your hair and lose your head or lose your hair and keep your head. And uh, in the south of China, an increasing number of Ming loyalists decide that they will keep their hair and take the consequences. And it takes a generation for the Manchus to conquer uh, 
the rest of China. They do. By the 1680s, the whole of China in Taiwan has come under, under Manchu control. Historian Jeffrey Parker is my guest. We'll return with him after this music break. You noble diggers all stand up now, stand up now. You noble diggers all stand up now. The wasteland to maintain, seen cavaliers by name. Your digging does maintain, and persons all defame. Stand up now, stand up now. With spades and hoes and ploughs, stand up now, stand up now. With spades and hoes and ploughs, stand up now. Your freedom to uphold, seen cavaliers are bold to kill you if they could, and rights from you to hold. Stand up now, diggers all. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly, and today I'm speaking with historian Jeffrey Parker. He teaches at Ohio State University and is the author of the award-winning book, Global Crisis, War, Climate Change, and Catastrophe in the 17th Century. That's published by Yale University Press. And we're discussing today that history as well as the important parallels, not simply about the causes of climate change, but the potential political consequences of extreme weather. Before the break, I was asking you about how elites responded in the 17th century to climate change and social disorder that arose from extreme weather. But I I want to turn to how the populations in different regions responded to these changes. Uh, You write in the book that in China, the number of major armed insurrections rose from under 10 in the 1610s to over 80 in the 1630s. And that In the words of a Chinese historian, rebel leaders rose like spines on a hedgehog. How common was that response of revolt? Very common. Uh, In those areas where resources run out, uh, uh, one obvious popular response is to organize yourself and to try and get it by force. Uh, Also, you try to intimidate your government into uh, uh, providing, uh, somehow getting hold of any way you can, getting hold of resources, or if they have those resources, to leave them locally rather than take them away and send them, for example, to an army or another town. Many of the riots, many of the rebellions begin because uh, uh, a government decides that it's army needs to be fed, and so they confiscate local grain, put it on the carts, and start to take it out of the town. That's what triggers the riots. It's, it's very visual, it's very immediate. But I would point out that there's, um, there's protocols. Uh, there's protocols in rebellion. There's an etiquette, if you like, an etiquette of rebellion. In the case of China, it very often involves uh, uh, placards. You, you, you have big posters. Uh, uh, you will sometimes uh, go to graves uh, uh, and demonstrate. You will go outside the magistrate's house and you will moan. Groups, large groups of people moan. And this is a sign uh, uh, they are very unhappy, and unless the magistrate takes some action, more serious consequences will follow. In the case of France, which has very, very good records, you will get one tax collector, and he will be ceremonially uh, uh, taken around the town, humiliated, beaten up, bits of him will be chopped off, and then he will be killed. Only one, and only in a ritual way, and that's a sign to the government that unless you do something now, we're going to get out of hand. It's going to get worse than that. Sometimes there's little um, preludes to that. For example, a common trick is to um, get, get a coffin and leave it outside a tax collector's house uh, with the implication that, you know, next time, if we have to do this again, you'll be inside it. Uh, going and cutting down a tax collector's uh, property, uh, uh, his trees, uh, his orchards, uh, his, his vineyards. Uh, again, it's, it's, it's something which is, is a sign. It's, it's a recognized um, uh, uh, sign that things are going to get bad. Uh, you often use women. Those of us old enough to remember the Vietnam War remember chicks up front that when dealing with the problems of the police, uh, you would sometimes get females in the crowd to go forth on the assumption that the police would not beat them up as badly. Same thing happens in the 17th century. You often get the women in the crowd to go at the front. And in both England and the Netherlands, there's a saying that women chant, women can do no wrong. 
and uh, they go forward. They they moon, they moon. Uh, they lift up their skirts. Uh, uh, they humiliate the tax collectors. And again, it's just a sign uh, of a large crowd which clearly could do much worse things. Uh, there's, there's menace in uh, mass movement. You don't have to uh, go out and kill people. You don't have to riot in the streets. Uh, just showing that you have the, the capacity is enough. What about migration? Obviously, people can be forced out, but as a voluntary act, how many people chose to flee to leave an area with the hope of finding better prospects elsewhere? Well, that's actually we come into the problem of evidence. Uh, Very often when a society faces stresses as serious as that, uh, its record keeping breaks down. So it's very, very difficult to track migrants, especially migrants who are fleeing because they're starving, who often are walking away from their farms. They really don't want to be followed. And so it's extremely difficult to track them. But you know, there's only three reactions. Uh, uh, There's only three responses of a population that has exceeded its uh, ability to feed itself. One is to reduce births. One is to increase deaths, and the third is migration. Migration clearly is very important, but it's the most difficult one to trace. Uh, death, by contrast, is very easy because uh, in the West you have the records of the of the parish registers, burials, uh, uh, you have graves, uh, you have gravestones. Uh, uh, that's also the case in China. We have a number of gravestones and a number of extraordinarily moving and, and very upsetting uh, verses, often by women, uh, who write uh, little poems before they kill themselves. Uh, uh, there's, uh, there's been a number of, of wonderful studies by someone called Grace Fong uh, on, on these uh, testaments uh, of the dying. Uh, but another way that you can kill to reduce the population is infanticide. And uh, a colleague of mine called Fabian Drixler at Yale University has brought out a book called Mabiki. Mabiki is a Japanese word, and it means thinning out, as you would do with seedlings rice seedlings, you know, to make a good rice harvest, you have to thin out the seedlings so that only some are left. Well, that same phrase is used by the Japanese in the 17th century to describe infanticide and abortion. And it clearly becomes very, very common, uh, uh, more common, and we know that it's also the case in China. It's the surest way to reduce the population. It's also the surest way to make sure you have the gender balance in the survivors that you want. If you want lots of boys in order to work the fields, you just kill the girls. And in some families uh, uh, which have left household records, we find five boys to one girl. Now, there is no natural way that that can be produced. There is no way in nature that would produce that imbalance between the sexes. Uh, And we conclude, therefore, that girls are being killed uh, uh, almost as soon as they're born. The the, the cover of Drixler's book has a a really striking picture of a midwife uh, just killing a baby, uh, because that's usually who did it. The midwife was the one who would say, keep it or not. And the, uh, the mother and father would say, not and the midwife would then either just crush it or drown it. And we have lots and lots of uh, uh, information on that. So famine will take care to some extent of of conceptions. It's much more difficult to bring a child to full term and to have it survive uh, in a famine. Uh, uh, But those that do, uh, uh, in China and Japan at least, you kill if if you don't want them. So that brings down the population pretty quickly. Uh, uh, but believe me, these, these sources are hard to read. Against the Grain is the program on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly, and I'm speaking with historian Jeffrey Parker about Global Crisis, his book. The subtitle is War, Climate Change, and Catastrophe in the 17th Century. So given the devastation that you have been describing in this hour, how did societies cope in the aftermath of the 17th century general crisis? Well, there are two um, reactions that stand out. The first of them is the mortality, which we were talking about a few moments ago. The reduction in the level of population solves part of the problem. That's to say, if you have a population where there are too many mouths to feed, take away the mouths, and sooner or later there will be enough food left. However bad the climate, however poor the harvest, there's still some food, and you will eventually get to the level where you can feed the mouths that are left. That's a brutal way of equalizing. But it does seem to me that one of the reasons for the exit 
uh, for the end of the uh, uh, crisis of the 17th century is that by the 1690s, enough people have died that the rest can be fed, even though, even though the Little Ice Age continues, even though there are no sunspots, even though there's still lots of volcanoes, even though there's frequent El Ninos, even though the harvests are fewer and less abundant, nevertheless, those who are left can be fed. So that's the first solution. The second solution is, in certain areas of the Northern Hemisphere, there is a belief that humans can solve this. There is a search for solutions. And I'd like to highlight two of them, because they are very striking. Uh, We tend to think of our 17th century ancestors being impotent. and In many ways, they were. They could not, just as we could not, stop the volcanic eruptions. But they do believe, there are groups of them who believe that if you put your attention to it, you can find ways to master nature. And the two examples I'd like to give you uh, concern the biggest killing diseases uh, which reach a peak in the 17th century. One is plague and one is smallpox. And both of them are to some extent tamed. They're not conquered, but they're tamed in the case of the seven, in the in the course of the 17th century. Uh, plague is brought under control in Europe, and it's done not by discovering how plague spreads, because that's not established until the 1890s, when a Russian scientist works out that it's a particular uh, bacillus. Uh, it's controlled in the 17th century by quarantine. Uh, you don't know how to control it, so you just stop everybody moving. You end all sorts of trade and communication between those who've got it and those do not. So in 1665, you have the Great Plague of London, which kills maybe 70,000 people. But it's the last one. There are no more plagues in London. Plague dies out in Sicily in 1624. Plague dies out in Scotland in 1649. Plague dies out in London, the Netherlands, and northern France in 1665 because as soon as you get an infection, the whole system shuts down. No contact is allowed between one area and another. You isolate the plague and in that way you control it. And that's a very remarkable achievement and it's entirely due to human ingenuity. Equally striking is the case of smallpox and there the solution is in China. Uh, It's not vaccination, which is the discovery of Mr. Dr. Jenner uh, in 1798 in England. This is the discovery of some Chinese doctors. We don't know who they are, but they attract the attention of the Manchu emperor, the Manchus who conquered China in 1644 and established their new dynasty. The Manchus have no exposure to smallpox, and so they suffer enormously when they come in contact with it. They have absolutely no immunity. They die like flies. Even the ruling dynasty dies uh, uh, heavily, including the emperor. Uh, Shunji Emperor, uh, the, the second of the Manchu emperors, dies in 1661. As he's on his deathbed, dying of smallpox, he says, right, we have to change this. The next emperor will be whichever of my sons has had smallpox and survived. Because one of the strange things about smallpox is you only get it once. Uh, once you've had it, once you've been exposed to it, if you survive, you will never get it again. And the Manchu worked that out, and so the next emperor is called the Kangxi Emperor. And as he grows up, he's, of course, fascinated by the disease which, in fact, brings him to power. And he wonders how he can get his Manchu uh, subjects uh, protected. And uh, he hears about a doctor who has worked out that if you create a little scar on the skin and put a tiny bit of uh, 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 smallpox, uh, of the pock of the of the the scab into this open wound, you will get a mild dose of it, and you'll recover, and you'll never get it again. So, the Kangxi Emperor, of course, first of all tried it on slaves. <laughs> it doesn't work; they die. So what? So, but the slaves survive. They're exposed to smallpox; they don't get it. Says, so, oh, oh, well, this looks promising. So then he has his immediate family facts, uh, 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 variolated as a technical term, and they all survive as well. And then he says, all right, all of you Manchu males. All of my potential soldiers, all of you are going to get variolation. So by 1700, uh, uh, the entire uh, uh, Manchu population has had a form of protection against smallpox. They don't get it. So again, they don't know how it spreads. They can't prevent you dying of it if you get it, but they can prevent you from getting it, and they do. And there's two really interesting examples, I think, of how humans react to the catastrophes of the 17th century. There's this belief that if you try hard enough, you will find a way out of the crisis. 
Well, in the time that we have left, I, I want to ask you about what lessons uh, beyond these these very specific ones can be uh, learned from the 17th century about how to handle the social effects of a climate crisis that is clearly in motion when there is not much will by elites to stop it. What would you say are the lessons now? Because as you've pointed out, a difference between the 17th century climate crisis and the climate crisis that we're facing today, that one was not human-caused, whereas this one is. That's a really important distinction, um, and I, I want to preface my answer by saying I, I do not delude myself that uh, uh, what worked in the 17th century is going to work today or that we are limited to the solutions of the 17th century. Clearly, we have far more resources than they did. We can do a much better job. But unfortunately, I, uh, our elites are not uh, uh, responsive at the moment for reasons which I don't entirely understand. They are not willing to accept that we are facing major climate change, major uh, severe extreme weather events. Uh, because I, I regret it because only they have the resources, really only the federal government in the United States has the resources to prevent the sort of catastrophe like Superstorm Sandy uh, or to deal with the enormous drought which affected the western uh, and, and middle parts of the United States last year. Only they have the resources. We, ordinary human beings, cannot deal with this. These prisons, these crises are too great. The only, thing we, the only chance we have is to make sure our government changes its mind. So, uh, yes, I, I, I agree with you. The government lacks a political will. We have to change that. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, think back uh, uh, three or four years. Uh, climate change, uh, all the polls showed that climate change was regarded as a, uh, either as a hoax or as an unimportant issue. I don't think anyone believes that now. We've had just so many really, really severe uh, uh, climate events. I think people are much more conscious of the danger that climate causes. Uh, but individuals even individual communities cannot deal with it alone. New York cannot deal with the risk of another superstorm cat Sandy alone. London alone, going back to my own native country, London cannot deal with the risk of another storm surge alone. It, it took the entire central government and all its resources and an enormous amount of money to build the Thames barrier in the 1980s uh, uh, because it was worked out. We, we have very good records in Britain. Uh, they go back further than our records in the United States. And uh, a survey showed that in 1791, which is the first date we had for a storm tide in the Thames, there was such and such a level. And the biggest storm tide of the 20th century, which was 1953, was three foot higher. And from that point, at this time, 1953, no one thought that perhaps it was, this problem was connected with global warming. Uh, with anthropogenic causes. Uh, but they did realize that a three-foot increase in the highest storm tide presented terrific problems and terrific dangers to London, and so the government stepped in and built the Thames Barrier. It's been activated 37 times since it was built because the storm tides are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, your question was, what do we do? What's, what's the difference since we are to blame? And there, of course, the 17th century is nothing to, nothing to teach us. You could argue that perhaps deforestation, you could argue that perhaps overpopulation had something to do, the beginnings of, of, of industrialization, which occur in the 17th century, begin this trend. But clearly the human influence is far less. Uh, we need to act to try and reduce uh, the human contribution to global warming. But it, that's going to take a lot of time. What we need to do right now is to start preparing for the next disaster. Uh, it's much cheaper to prepare. I know it's expensive. Building the Thames Barrier was very expensive, but far less than another flood destroying London, as, as floods did in the 1660s and the 1760s and 1953. Far less in human terms, far less in terms of property. Uh, another superstorm, Sandy, is going to cause untold damage. New York was rather lucky that the damage was not worse. So however much it costs to try and protect New York, New Jersey, against another one, the cost is far less than the consequences of repair. It's much cheaper to prepare than to repair. So we need to start preparing more. And I'm afraid only the central government, only the federal government, has the resources to do that. So we have to work on them, not only to show leadership in reducing 
uh, emissions, global warming, but also in starting to prepare for a catastrophe which unfortunately is going to come just as the 17th century was unavoidable, so another catastrophe in the 21st century is unavoidable. And we need to start preparing. And a, a good way to start is to start preparing for uh, the rise in sea levels uh, in, in, uh, around the coast of the United States. Jeffrey Parker, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for uh, talking to me. I've been speaking with historian Jeffrey Parker about his book, Global Crisis, War, Climate Change and Catastrophe in the 17th Century. That's published by Yale University Press. He's the author of more than a dozen books, many on military history, and he teaches at Ohio State University. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and Sia Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio. Hey.